Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everyone. My name is Amy. I'm an alcoholic. And it's um, really good to be on here. It's always an honor whenever my sponsor volunteers me to do something that keeps me sober. Um, so just to introduce myself, um, um, I have a home group. Um, it's Mount Zion in Atlanta, Georgia. We meet Monday nights at 8 p.m. Um, I have a sponsor. I have a wonderful sponsor family, um, something that I'm so grateful for. I get to look up to a lot of women and I do sponsor women. Um, and I actively work the steps. And, um, for me, uh, I was asked which step I wanted to speak on. And for me, it was really step nine. And, um, here up in Atlanta, we read those promises every single meeting. And, um, for me, those promises, it's really, it's, once you sit down and you make face-to-face amends, it is just, it's the best insurance on your sobriety. Um, for me, it was the most difficult step. Um, there were some really, really difficult amends to make, um, but I had really good guidance by my sponsor and I followed the process. Now, have I always followed the process suggested? No. I have made those quick amends. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I treated you this way or I acted that way um, without any self-appraisal. And so blindly going into an amends, um, you know, those quick amends is it causes more damage. And I have seen that from, you know, the best the best example is a bad example. And I've been that bad example before. Um But for me, I think the best way to speak about step nine is I'll reference the book a little bit, but to really tell you about the experiences I've had through the process of making amends. Um, You know, I was given really clear cut instructions. Um, It tells us in the book how we need to make amends. um, But I was also told to make sure I was prepared. Um, before I stepped in and made my first, you know, real genuine amends, I had gone through the steps. Um, I was really able to sit on six and seven and see where my defects had come out in many situations. And most of my defects, I don't know if you can relate. Most of my defects come out when I'm reacting or, um, you know, I'm causing something then something happens. And then I justify my defects in my reaction, because even though I harmed you, you've now harmed me. And so that inability to own up to my part is what held me back from doing my amends the first few times. Um, Just so you have an idea, I came into AA when I was 18 years old. Um, I was sober until I was 20 and then uh, got sober again. So, um, I've been sober longer than I've drank. Um, I'm 33, so that eight, that it's been a while. Um, and for me, I know that a failure to make amends, a failure to look at your part, um, justifiable anger is a breeding ground for relapse. And for myself, I was 26 years old and I relapsed after six years of sobriety. And a lot of it really had to do 
with not being willing to move past that six and seven and honestly make genuine amends. Um, so for me, I, I uh, did not know how to step in and walk in and make an amends in our book clearly. So I'm going to read um, clearly states how we need to make amends. And uh, when we sit down, the most important part is to listen and to open that door after you've made the amends and ask, is there anything I've left out? Because the amends isn't for me in the sense I get growth out of it, but this is my opportunity to validate the harms that I've done to the other person. And so in our book, it says under no condition, do we criticize such a person or argue simply, we tell him that we will never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. We are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified by the result. And um, the way that I was taught to do my, my amends was to have a note card. And I would write down basically what I wanted to say. Some of my amends, all I could do was read from my note card because I was so full of fear. And on the back of it, the only thing I was allowed to say back to the person was, I can understand how you feel that way. Not to uh, create back and forth or to criticize or create a bigger issue. That was really my only part in it. Um, I've got some crazy amends that I've made. Um, So I just, you know, I love to talk about them because they were things that were, you know, instrumental in my sobriety. And, you know, like in the book with step nine, it talks about that spiritual experience so much that once we're able to get through our amends, that's really what opens up that gate as we move on and we continue to pray and we help others. Um, And trying to help others without getting to that point of making face-to-face amends, trying to sponsor women, it's really hard to do because you have not cleared the wreckage of your past. And um, for me, I was that person for a long time. I was a ripping, whirling tornado. And I was raised in the South. And we like to brush things under the rug, like, okay, well, that happened, but let's not talk about it anymore. It's uncomfortable. And so a long time for me, I would cause a tornado. I would come out and the person would seem okay. So I would be okay. And that's not really a way to live life controlled by the other person's what you're perceiving. Because I know for me, there's two different ways I I can either really keep things in or you really know I'm upset. There's like no middle of the ground for me. I've tried to master that in sobriety, um, but trying to continue to get to that point is really the goal. And so for me, I wanted to talk about a few of my amends I made. Um, So I got sober when I was 20 years old. Um, Prior to that, I had gotten a DUI when I was 17, which in Florida is kind of a big deal if you're not the legal drinking age. And it's a bigger deal when you get two before the legal drinking age. And um, I had gotten a DUI and I was coaching at a high school. Um, I'm an avid runner and I was coaching track and field and I got arrested 
I, I couldn't come coach. They didn't know where I was at. And, you know, for me, I was a young alcoholic. So there was always a lot of resentment at my parents for them not being able to tell the truth. It took step work to realize that my parents were doing the best they could do and they just wanted to protect me. And so my mom called my coach, um, told him that I was in the hospital with a heart issue, that my heart was beating backwards. That's literally what she told him. And I got out of jail, went back to work. And the first day I was back, they had written me a Giltwell card, the, the whole high school team. And at that moment, I think it was an, a, the epitome of humiliation. I knew I had lied. I knew I was dishonest. And, you know, I'd worked the steps and got to a point where I realized I needed to make amends. And I was embarrassed. Um, I, I thankfully had had the practice of when I got my DUI, my judge made me go to my high school, my own high school, and talk about my experience with drinking and driving. So that was um, the first really dose of humility that kind of prepared me for being able to go in and make amends after I had to look my teachers and my high school coaches in the eye and basically say, this is what I did. And um, I, I went to my coach. I made the amends. Um, and thank God, this was one of the first big amends I made. It went, as it said in the book, it can go nine out of 10 ways. It, it might go well. The person might receive the amends. And my coach had family members that were in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he completely understood. And he was super grateful that I had gone to that length. Um, something else that was really important to me um, you know, it was it was drilled in my head that we live in society and we follow the rules. You know, we don't skimp, we don't cheat, we don't cheat the system. We live by the rules and we are taught like to stay in our lane. And um, for me, I, I don't know why, but I put on my amends that I felt with my two DUIs and knowing that I could have killed someone, I felt like I owed an amends to society. And um, for my first few years of sobriety, I was a waitress. The first year of my sobriety, I had to wear an ankle monitor for a year. I had to plug it in like the Energizer Bunny every night and charge it. And I worked at a really hot diner and I always wore jeans and I was always so hot, but I was working as a waitress. And there was a woman that would always come in and sit at the bar. Her name was Rachel. And I had, I was her, she was my regular. I had multiple conversations with Rachel and I found out that Rachel's husband was killed by a drunk driver when she was following him. And so she had witnessed the whole thing. And um, Rachel would always come in and always come in. And I had been praying about how I wanted to make my amends to society because I was a detriment to society. I was irresponsible. And um one day Rachel came in and it was around, it was right before Easter Sunday and Rachel's power had been turned off. Um, she was really struggling. And so I don't know where, or how it comes from it, but it's so important to pray about how you want to make your amends. And for me, that was something that was constantly 
in my prayers on how do I make my amends to society? And I was told by my sponsor that God would present itself when it was the proper way and the proper time. And, um, you know, I share my amends, not by anything to build my ego or doing things to make myself in the sense of better. But I knew when Rachel came in that day that I was going to pay her electric bill and get her power turned back on. And so um, I ended up paying her electric to get her power turned back on. And there was a waiting period over the weekend. They couldn't just turn it back on. You had to wait. It was crazy how it worked in Jacksonville. Um, But I knew she didn't have power on Easter Sunday. So I invited her to my church and I invited her over for Easter lunch. And that to me was one of the most powerful amends because it was completely by the direction of God. And I was, I had opened up and asked him what I, what should I do? And that is what he told me to do. Um, I, because I was a detriment of society, um, you know, I went to court a lot. I went to court a lot and um, I, I, I had the same judge, same judge. And, um, he would hold me in court and look at me and just say, I don't understand. And, um, you know, he knew I was an alcoholic. He knew I had gone to AA previously. And he said to me, you know, obviously AA doesn't work, um, because I was a relapser and I kept on getting into trouble and, um, what my judge did, I felt at that moment, and when I was going through it after my second DUI, I thought it was so harsh. You know, um, going to jail treatment, wearing an ankle monitor, I had to go to 10 high schools and speak to kids about drinking and driving. How about it's more than just killing people? It can completely change the course of your life. Um, and I had to go visit people that had lost family members to drinking and driving accidents and write an essay about my interaction with them. And um, I really didn't understand at the time what my judge was really trying to do. And, you know, I got really lucky because in many cases, you're not able to make amends to your judge. And um, I went to the courthouse and I actually was able to make amends to my judge and tell him you know, that I was sober, um, that I was sorry for, you know, taking up his time because of my bad behavior and, um, you know, get, it was a blessing that I got to make that amends. And, you know, I was very young at this. I couldn't have been, but 21, 22 when this happened. And I ended up going on a mission trip a little bit later And I was sending out my letters for like raising money. And I was like, oh, send it to my judge. He's obviously, you know, he can give me a donation. I did not get a donation, but he did accept my amends. And um, that was something that was really empowering to me. Um, The biggest amends I've had to make in my life was something that actually sent me into a relapse. Um, I was about four years sober. And I was working for a gentleman that was basically my second father. Um, he was the, the, he was my family's best friend. He was the gentleman that came and picked me up from jail 
because my father just did not have it in him to come get me out of jail and see me in that state. Um, I was working for a gentleman. Um, it was a one a CPA, one person operation. Um, my, my, my dad was the office next door. So we all worked in the same building. And one day something happened that should never happen in the workplace. And for me, what I know now is that amends have to be made many times in the reaction, the reaction you have, even with justifiable anger. This person harmed me. I did not do anything to get that harm. And I was very young. I was angry. I was scared. So everything it talks about in the big book, I was full of fear. I was full of resentment. How could you do this to me? I'm sober. These things aren't supposed to happen when you get sober. I'm not putting myself in bars and drunk and, you know, not, not giving a crap about myself. And so when that happens, the first thing I did, thank God, was I walked. I walked to the San Marco Club. It was a two, three mile walk. And I walked straight to the AA Clubhouse because I did not know what to do. Um, you know, I didn't have a car for a long time because of my DUI. So a lot of, you know, I got a job close to the AA Clubhouse because I wanted to be at meetings. And so a lot of my life was really centered around focusing on my sobriety in the first five years. Um, so for me, I got to the AA Clubhouse and I didn't know what to do. And so um, this person was a member of my church. And was my family's closest friend. And my parents were members of the same church. So the whole situation was like a ticking time bomb. I didn't know what to do. I had spoken to my sponsor. Um, and I actually reached out to my pastor. I was under the assumption that they knew who I worked for. They did not. Um, I ended up meeting with my pastor. They referred me to a attorney. That was a member of the same church. Now, the one thing I know is that in that moment, I knew how involved it already was within a community. And um, I could have taken time to pause and seek out counsel outside of that circle. Um, I ended up uh, taking legal action and suing, um, and won, won the suit. Um, but that it really, it was just, that was only a piece and part of it. Um, you know, I had lost my job. Um, I couldn't afford my car that I had worked so hard for. Um, I couldn't afford my hardship license cause I couldn't work. And, um, I ended up moving out of my house and moving into a halfway house at four years sober. Um, there were just things that went on within my family that made it very uncomfortable to live in that house. And that was another resentment that was bloomed. Um, you know, for me, it took me a lot of time to see that I had caused harm to his family because I didn't take time to pause and think about 
getting a lawyer outside of that church community. Um, It harmed his daughter. It harmed his wife. Now, I am not responsible for someone else's actions, period, end of story. There are some behaviors that are unacceptable, but I am responsible for my reaction. And for me, I knew that I could have paused, then reacted the same day and taken time to listen to my sponsor's advice, get thoughtful counsel, and try to handle it in a little bit more of a responsible manner. Um, For me, I felt really called and my sponsor had suggested that it would be appropriate to make an amends. And this one was the hardest amends I had to make was to his family. Um, I had written everything down on a card um, and I didn't make that amends for two years. I was angry for two years, but I kept praying, prayed for the other person, prayed for the strength. Like it says, pray for the strength to be able to make the amends. And I was driving home from my husband and I worked together. I was driving home from work one day and it just came over me, just came over me, um, that I was ready to make amends to his family. And, um, I ended up, um, meeting them at a Starbucks. I had everything written on my card. And for the first time ever, I was allowed to say, I not say, I understand how you feel that way. Because I was not going to co-sign nor enable that bad behavior and make it seem okay. And um, I was able to make my amends to the family for harming it, that I was responsible for my reaction. And it would have been smarter to go outside and seek counsel where it would have been a little bit more private and not harm his family. And, um, you know, there was back and forth, but I was really able to state, I'm here only to make this amends to your family. And um, it was the scariest thing I ever did. It was the scariest thing I ever did. But once I made that amends, it felt like I could make any amends. And um, it made me look a little bit deeper at my reaction to people. Now, sometimes people, you won't step on people's toes and then, you know, they react to you, you react back. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And it's all in your reaction. And that was something that I really needed to learn. Um, many of my amends, when I did my amends, I, I, I knew that the one thing, because I have other amends, the one thing I knew was not to manipulate or martyr in my amends. And I'm a good old alcoholic. You know, my favorite thing to do is to manipulate. You know, I'm doing this because I want to feel, you know, I want to feel this way. I need you to do that. I need you to do this. Um, But I just, there's no room for manipulation or martyring when you're sitting down face to face with someone else. Um, Now, I think it's really cool when, uh, so my whole family, they're alcoholics. It's like, if you shake a tree, they're all going to fall out. And, um, you know, my mom is a sober alcoholic. My mother-in-law is an alcoholic. My husband's an alcoholic. My dad's not an alcoholic, but he's a control freak. Um, so, you know, kind of the same thing. Cause you know, us alcoholics, we drink and we're out of control and then we get sober and all we want is control. We don't want to give it to God. We want to control the show when alcohol was controlling the show prior. And, um, you know, for me, I've actually been on the other end of amends. 
And I've been on the other end of good amends and I've been on the other end of bad amends because sometimes I, I've sat there and said, well, this isn't how my sponsor told that you should do amends. And um, but then I've been on the other end of really genuine amends. And um, I know that when we make these amends, some of them have to be living amends, things that we promise to not do again. And so the best example with family is I cheated, I lied, I stole, um, and I had, un I, I just was angry at my parents and I felt like I wasn't set up right for life. I mean, there were multiple resentments I had, um, the biggest resentment I had against my family, which was the hardest one was just to get over the anger and the event that really, really, really bothered me and really came down to my living amends. My living amends to my family is that no matter what they do, they're doing the best they can do at that moment in time. If I'm not willing to accept them for who they are, then I'm holding on to resentment and I'm holding on to anger. And, you know, I don't know what it is about parents, but that it sometimes is it happens yearly. I have to look at that semi-annually, quarterly, daily. I have to remind myself that they are doing the best they can do at that moment in time. And I come from a Southern family. If you make an amends to a Southern family, okay, sweetheart, let's not talk about that anymore. That is in the past. And uh, that was really how my verbal amends went. So it really had to be like an, a, a shift, a change where I wasn't going to do that same behavior anymore. Um, for me, one thing that was really the most difficult thing that I, the resentment I've had to really, it still comes up. It still comes up to this day is that after everything happened, um, I told you I worked for a CPA who did my family's taxes. After all that happened, my father went back to him to get his taxes done the following year. This was after suit. This was after him knowing what happened. And I was unable to talk to my father for like a few months because I was angry. And I'd already made that verbal amends. And so I really had to look at it that my dad's a brush it under the rug kind of guy. He doesn't like the uncomfortable. He doesn't like his routine to be changed up. He doesn't like having the shaking up of his friends, but he really, he really lacked the ability, the pain that he would have probably have had to go through to really accept what had happened. And um, for me, it still comes up to this day. It still comes up to this day. And so for me, I have to constantly remind myself is that I made a living amends. I can't react, but I just have to accept him for where he's at today. And, um, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with my father today. You know, um, I'm able to talk to him about big life decisions, but, um, you know, the ability just to forgive comes through that amends process that their harms no longer matter. You just focus on your side of the street. Um, you know, I think 
everybody has probably done have had resentments in the workplace. I mean, we are not good employees when we get sober. We like to think we are. We show up to work first day. We want to be the boss. And, um, you know, for me, I, I've worked in multiple workplaces in sobriety. Um, I remember I didn't even want to deal with responsibility the first few years. So I just did little jobs here and there because I didn't want anything to interfere with my meetings. And that's just where I was at, at 20, 21, 22. All, I just wanted to be at AA. And um, I got to that point in sobriety where I had my meeting schedule and I realized that, you know, I wanted to continue to apply myself and grow in other areas. But for me, even in sobriety, we can do things that cause harm. It can be minor things. It can be big things. And for me, it was lying at work and I'm sober. You know, I have a sponsor. I had the same sponsor I had today when I did this and um, I lied at work. I, um, I'm an insurance. I was an insurance agent for a long time. And uh, we had a, a competition going on. If you buy the most policies today, you get a $500 gift card. If you weigh $500 in front of a competitive alcoholic, oh, I'm going to get that $500. And um, the deadline was at 5 p.m. And so I was in the process of binding a policy. And I went ahead and put it in the system that it was bound. Well, where I was trying to place it wouldn't take it. So I didn't get that policy bound until like 6.30. And um, I knew it was wrong. I went out of town that weekend and all I could think about was that, that I had lied, I had lied. And then I come into work Monday, ready to make my amends because I'd already called my sponsor. And I said, I lied. I know I did this wrong. I need to go back in and do this. And um, another woman who really wasn't happy about it went in and started to pull my files and my policies and basically become an investigator of my book business. Now, that didn't matter because she would have not done that if I hadn't lied to beat her. And so, you know, I went into that office that day and I made my amends. Now I had to deal with the wrath of that person after, but I had to accept that I had stepped on the toes and she had retaliated. And so no matter like her hate, her scorn, no matter how much I thought that she just was, you know, where I was at that point in my sobriety, you know, I didn't like her. I wouldn't go get lunch with her, but I couldn't be angry at her. And um, so that amends I had to make. And so a lot of our amends are centered around money and people um, and places and things. Um, But for me, that was something that I had to make. Now, the inability to really look at my part with everything that happened when I was in that workplace really continued to fester and eat on me and eat on me and eat on me. And I'd gotten to a point where I was angry at life. Life had wronged me. I had lost my car. I had lost my living place. I had lost my job. Um, Why was I the one to suffer? And that resentment kind of carried on that life had just wronged me. And, you know, if you're angry long enough to become angry at AA, AA is not good enough. I'm tired of hearing the same people share. And that had kind of bled in. And then I relapsed. 
Now, it wasn't just this sudden thing. It was a gradual process. You know, that anger had halted me where I really was cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. And I, um, there was never a point in my sobriety when I was angry that I, I didn't not believe in God. I knew there was a God, but I didn't trust God. And so for me, there was no reliance on anything, only reliance on self. And that anger and that resentment, that breeding ground is what really led me to that relapse. Um, bear with me. And so I know I've always been told that the amends process is really what separates the boys from the men, the ladies from the women, the girls from the women, um, because it really is something that we really overcome to really get to that spiritual experience in sobriety. Um, you know, being able to make honest amends and make financial amends. I mean, I stole out of sobriety and I stole in sobriety. And so having to go make those amends and give cash to a department store and say, I owe you this. Those are really hard things to do and look at when you have the same character. They're not assets, they're defects um, that you have carried into your sobriety. And, you know, the same person will drink again. The inability to really sit on that six and seven and see those defects and see how those defects have actually harmed others. um, There's no growth there. And so for me, I think I really had a clear understanding that this for me was the period of reconstruction. This was where I was able to rebuild and gain self-esteem and be able to walk down the road like a free woman, because before I was so controlled by fear of other people, anger, and self-esteem. I mean, I was exactly like it says in the book, I was an egomaniac with an inferior inferiority complex. And so when I finally was able to sit down and make sure I did like a clear four and five and look at my resentments. Um, I mean, yeah, look at my resentments and then look at my defects. It really made me ready to own my part. Um, I'm going to read something else. So just bear with me. And so it talks about spiritual a lot in the book when it talks about step, step eight and nine. Um, so When we make living amends, because a good portion of my alcoholic family tree is just living amends and free of judgment. And it's very easy to slip into those things. Um, You know, I go to other programs that really help me deal with my alcoholic family. And it's the best thing for me because it really reminds me that part of living amends is just accepting them for where they are at right at that moment in time. But um, So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way the living amends is patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. And um, that to me, I mean, with, I'm just going to jump to another step. I mean, when you do your nightly inventory, was I kind to all? Was I kind and loving to all? Never have I had a day where I can say I was kind and loving to all. 
And so it really is just a practice, especially with my family, um, is realizing that, you know, I need to practice kindness, patience, and love. Um, And once again, it talks about the spirituality. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And this, this step is where they talk about faith without works is dead. And that really trusting the process more than just believing in God, but trusting in God is being able to sit down and make these face-to-face amends. Um, My grandfather died when I was in treatment. I I could not go to the funeral. I had an ankle monitor on and I wasn't able to leave the county. And, um, you know, I, I knew I needed to make amends in that way. And so I just went and lived in his house with my aunt and helped get that house back in order and um, clean the roof, clean whatever she asked me to clean. And so amends can look anyway, especially with the departed. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that I have been able to apply this step. And, you know, it's really part of, you know, going through this makes it a little bit easier that when you do that spot check inventory, you know where you need to make an amends. And the way that I am today, if something truly disturbs me, it's either an immediate amends or I walk in the next day and I make that amends. Um, it's really just acknowledgement of behavior. And so, you know, the promises that we read every single day in a meeting for me is really it happens when we have sat down and we have been, we have had the ability to make these face-to-face amends. And so I'm just going to read it because it really just tells us is this is what's promised to us. If we're willing to sit down and own our part and be open to the analysis from that party that we hurt, we're open to hear them. Where do we cause harm? Um, So if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So for me, everything it talks about in those promises, the opposite is where I was living. Um, I was living in fear. Um, I was selfish. Um, I didn't have the ability to use anything bad that had happened to me for the good by helping another alcoholic. Um, And allowing God, allowing to trust God that he was in control of the process. And so for me, we make the commitment at the beginning of the steps to turn our life over to a higher power. And then when we sit down and we make these face-to-face amends, we don't know the result. It's all unknown. It's really about trusting God, that God is in control of those outcomes. Um, And for me, I remember hearing this in meetings and some of these things were so such a stretch for me. 
You know, I was completely fearful of people's opinions of me. I had terrible self-esteem. Um, I was angry at the world. Um, I was scared. I, I didn't, I, you know, I was totally scared of money. Um, I did not trust myself with money. I didn't understand how people could be responsible with money. I just didn't understand. And for me, I truly had felt that I had gone pretty far down the scale. Um, when I came in, there was a lot of young people in sobriety that the bottom had come up and hit them. And for me, I had just gone down and hit that bottom. So for me, when I first would hear these promises, I thought they were so far-fetched. But the ability to sit down and make these amends in any way possible, however my sponsor told me to do it, I would do it. If I was told to write a letter, if I was told to do it face-to-face, no matter how scary, I did it. And, um, you know, it's a process. There's still some amends that I pray on and that God will present the time. It's not my job to seek them out. And there are some amends where I knew genuinely if I made them, they would cause more harm. And so for me, it was finding another way to make that amends and changing that behavior. And um, that's really all it comes down for me is step eight, nine is that, you know, trusting God, making those amends. And the commitment, the action part is changed behavior because an apology just isn't acceptable when it comes to the amends. It truly has to be um, like a psychic change. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that I got asked to speak. Um, I really love step nine, eight, nine, because I've had some really awesome experiences from getting over that fear and being willing to sit down and being adequately prepared and knowing my job and that amends. So um, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.